Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 5th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision shows how the failure to admit all medical records into evidence doomed the employer's case for apportionment of a permanent disability. In this case, Patricia Harrison claimed injury to her right shoulder and neck in 2019 while employed as a child support officer too by Los Angeles County Child Support. The party stipulated that she had a prior industrial injury to her back in 2011, which was resolved by stipulations with request for award that the 2011 injury caused 24% disability attributed to the cervical spine. The issues at the trial of the new 2019 injury included permanent disability, apportionment, and the applicability of Section 4664 of the Labor Code for the prior 2011 award. Exhibits admitted at trial included two reports from applicant's primary treating physician and three reports from the QME in the 2019 case, but none of the medical reporting from the prior 2011 injury were included as evidence in this trial. The QME in the 2019 injury case was provided with the reporting of the agreed medical evaluator for the 2011 injury. And after reading it, he apportioned 45% of permanent disability to the cervical spine to the prior 2011 injury, but he did not provide a rationale about how he arrived at that apportionment between the two injuries. After submission, the work comp judge found that applicant's 2019 injury had caused 30% permanent disability and that apportionment of only 20% was due to the neck disability attributable and other disability was attributable to other factors. And reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Harrison v. Los Angeles County Child Support. On reconsideration, the County of Los Angeles contended that the work comp judge failed to properly address apportionment to applicants' prior disability award for the neck consistent with the QME's opinion. In its order denying reconsideration, the panel pointed out that the employer holds the burden of proof to show apportionment of permanent disability. In order to prove apportionment for a prior permanent disability award under Labor Code Section 4664, the employer must prove the extent of the overlap between the prior disability and the current one. But overlap is not proven merely by showing the second injury was to the same body part, because the issue of overlap requires a consideration of the factors of disability or work limitations resulting from the two injuries, not merely the body parts injured. The AME for the 2011 injury rated applicant cervical spine impairment using the DRE method, and the QME for the new injury rated the spinal impairment using the range of motion, range of motion or ROM method. 
Since none of the medical reports from applicants' 2011 injury were placed in evidence, the WCAB panel said it was unable to compare the overlap between the two methods. And the QME in the new case did not provide any discussion regarding how applicants' prior permanent disability for the cervical spine overlaps with their current permanent disability for this body part. Consequently, defendant failed to meet its burden of proof to show overlap and apportionment pursuant to Section 4664 is therefore not warranted. And the Court of Appeal ruled that the workers' compensation insurance carriers are not required to notify their insured of WCARB classification changes that increase their premium. The employer in this case was Cover Right Roofing Incorporated. It held a work comp insurance policy with a state fund in 2017. And for that year, State Fund assigned a dual-wage classification relating to roofing operations. The 2017 policy automatically renewed for 2018, and State Fund again calculated the estimated premium for the 2018 policy using the same dual-wage classification, and it estimated $25,400 for a premium. State Fund then performed an audit of the 2018 policy in early 2019, and it found Cover Right Roofing had paid most of its employees $23 to $24 an hour in 2018. This was less than the new dual-wage threshold of $25 an hour, and State Fund concluded that Cover Right owed a final premium of nearly $56,800 for the 2018 policy. This was more than twice what the estimate said. Coverright said it did not know the dual wage threshold had increased by $2 over the two policy years until it received state funds bill. So it did not pay the bill and the disputed difference was the issue in this Superior Court case. Coverright filed a cross-complaint against the state fund, alleging state fund failed to provide notice that its base rate would increase. State fund then moved for a summary judgment on Coverright's cross-complaint, because it was the WCIRB and not the state fund that increased the respective base rates from $23 an hour in 2017 to $25 per hour in 2018 for the combined wage rate. State Fund argued the statutes do not require notice for such WCIRB changes. And the trial court agreed with the State Fund and granted summary judgment. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of Coverright Roofing Incorporated versus State Compensation Insurance Fund. This appeal asked the Court of Appeal to interpret Insurance Code Section 11664, which requires workers' comp insurers to provide their insurers with notice of certain premium rate increases and requires that if the premium rate for the insured is to be increased 25% or greater, the insurer shall provide a written notice of a renewal offer 
not less than 30 days prior to the policy renewal date. But State Fund argued there was no violation of this law because it did not increase the respective base rates by more than 25%. It was the WCIRB that was responsible for that change. And the Court of Appeal agreed and concluded that prior to the effective date of the 2018 policy, State Fund could only speculate as to whether Coverite would be assigned the dual-rate classification. Given the information it had, at best, State Fund could have provided Coverite with notice of a potential change to its base rate for the 2018 policy. But the statute does not require notice of potential increases. It only requires notices of premium rate is to be, is to be increased 25% or greater. The Court of Appeal concluded by saying it sympathized with the employer cover right situation. Since cover right could have avoided the higher base rate had it known of this change by slightly increasing the hourly wage for its roofers. But, as a matter of public policy, it would be unreasonable to compel insurers to monitor the Bureau's changes to the various industry classifications. And in another Court of Appeal decision, the Court concluded that a city is immune from a lawsuit for bad advice it gave to an injured police officer. In this case, Sean Conway, a police officer with the San Diego Police Department, sustained a work-related injury back in 2004, resulting in multiple surgeries and spinal fusions. Then in 2008, Sandra Clausen, a medical review officer employed by San Diego City Employees Retirement System, recommended that the Retirement Board approve Conway's disability retirement. The San Diego City Employees Retirement System granted Mr. Conway's permanent disability retirement after finding his injuries had resulted in permanent incapacity from the substantial performance of his duties. And Mr. Conway and his family then moved to Idaho. The following year, he obtained a job as jail technician and later secured a job as a detention specialist at a juvenile detention facility in Idaho. Five years later, in 2013, Mr. Conway considered applying for a position as a detention deputy in an Idaho County jail. But he became concerned that accepting this position might jeopardize his disability pension. So that year, he met with Sandra Clausen, the same medical review officer, to inquire whether his acceptance of this job would jeopardize his disability pension. Clausen told his family that since the San Diego Police Department did not staff jails, there was no comparable position with the San Diego Police Department, so Conway's taking the Idaho position would not jeopardize his disability pension. They asked Ms. Clausen multiple times to put her assurances in writing, but she declined to do so, telling them that they don't do that, but you have nothing to worry about. So Mr. Conway went ahead and took the Idaho position. However, as it turned out, this was bad advice, 
since the San Diego City Employees Retirement System later commenced an administrative action to have his disability retirement taken away. And after a hearing, the judge ruled in Mr. Conway's favor and recommended his disability retirement continue. And the retirement board then voted to continue his disability retirement. But the Conways then sued San Diego City Employees Retirement System for intentional and negligent representation and concealment and alleged they incurred substantial expenses and suffered substantial emotional distress during their efforts to eliminate his disability pension. But the trial court sustained a demur to the second amended complaint without leave to amend, ruling that the action was barred by the government code immunity provisions. And the trial court was affirmed in the unpublished case of Conway versus San Diego City Employees Retirement System. Under the Government Claims Act, a public entity is not liable for injury except as otherwise provided by that statute. Government Code Section 815.6 is one of these statutes, and government immunity is waived only if various requirements of the Act are satisfied. And one of the requirements is that the government agency be engaged in a mandatory duty at the time of the offense or event. Here, there was a lack of a showing of any mandatory duty to properly advise the Conways about their pension continuation. And this is the missing element for the governmental immunity exception to apply to their claims. And in another appellate case, a school district's COVID vaccination mandates were found to be preempted by state law. Back in September 2021, the San Diego Unified School District adopted a vaccination roadmap requiring students ages 16 or older to be vaccinated for COVID-19 in order to attend in-person classes and participate in sports and other extracurricular activities. And the unvaccinated students in this group were involuntarily placed on independent study. That represents a community of more than uh, the company that represents a community of more than 20,000 parents filed a complaint and petition for a writ of mandate challenging the roadmap. About six weeks later, a similar complaint was filed by SV, the parent of a 16-year-old student, and the two cases were consolidated for trial. After conducting a hearing on motions for judgment, the trial court ruled that the district's COVID-19 immunization requirement was preempted by state law. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of Let Them Choose versus the San Diego Unified School District. A century ago, during a smallpox, smallpox epidemic, the California Supreme Court held that the legislature may require school children to be vaccinated against that disease. Since then, the legislature has required students to be vaccinated for 10 diseases in total, but COVID-19 is not yet one of them. Each of the 10 listed diseases was added through legislative action, 
After careful consideration of the public health risks of these diseases, cost to the state and health system, communicability, and rates of transmission. And during 2015 amendments to this law, the legislature also considered whether vaccination should be mandated on a school district by school district basis or instead statewide. And the bill analysis explained that a statewide standard was preferred. The analysis said that a statewide standard allows for a consistent policy that can be publicized in a uniform manner so districts and educational efforts may be enacted with best practices for each district. Intrastate preemption occurs when local law duplicates, contradicts, or enters an area fully occupied by general state law, either expressly or by legislative implication. Here, the legislature has fully addressed the process of adding diseases to the 10 enumerated ones, and the Sioux District's COVID-19 mandate unlawfully seeks to usurp that authority. Given the scope of the state statutes, school districts have no remaining discretion in these matters. Thus, the roadmap is preempted because it purports to regulate an area of law that the legislature has fully occupied. And now our crime report. After a jury trial, Sandy Mai Trong Nguyen of Irvine, an Orange County pharmacist, has been found guilty of nearly two dozen federal criminal charges for her role in a health care fraud scheme in which more than 1,000 bogus prescriptions for compounded medications were filled, costing TRICARE, the U.S. military's health care plan, more than $11 million in losses. Nguyen was the pharmacist in charge of the now-defunct Irvine Wellness Pharmacy. According to evidence presented at her five-day jury trial, Nguyen and others under her supervision filled about 1,150 compounded prescriptions for pain, scarring, and migraines that TRICARE reimbursed for tens of thousands of dollars per prescription. Nearly all of the prescriptions were sent to the pharmacy by so-called marketers, who were paid kickbacks of upwards of 50% of the TRICARE reimbursements. The beneficiaries were solicited to provide their TRICARE insurance information for medications they did not seek out or need, and most were never examined by a physician. These prescriptions were electronically sent from marketers or telemedicine businesses and submitted by the pharmacy for reimbursement, even though TRICARE rules excluded reimbursement for claims based on telemedicine visits and would not in any event have been authorized had TRICARE known the prescriptions originated based upon payment of kickbacks. The pharmacy invoiced the beneficiaries to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in required co-payments, but the beneficiaries for the most part stated that they knew nothing about co-payments and understood that the medications were fully covered by TRICARE, according to the trial testimony. A sentencing hearing has been scheduled for next April, at which time Nguyen will face 
a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in federal prison for each health care fraud count and five years in federal prison for the audit obstruction count. And in regulatory news, the Labor Code authorizes the Department of Industrial Relations to assess employers for the costs of the administration of the workers' compensation, health and safety, and labor standards enforcement programs. These labor code provisions require allocations of the six assessment types between insured and self-insured employers in proportion to their payroll for the most recent year available. The total amounts of the assessments for all payers for each of the six categories for the current assessment are approximately as follows. Number one, the Workers' Compensation Administrative Revolving Fund Assessment was $617 million. The Subsequent Injuries Benefits Trust Fund Assessment was $431 million. The Uninsured Employers Benefits Trust Fund Assessment was $49 million. And the Occupational Safety and Health Fund Assessment, $195 million. The Labor Enforcement and Compliance Fund Assessment, was $188 million, and the last category was the Workers' Compensation Fraud Account Assessment at $88 million. The total cost of these six assessments were more than $1,568,000,000. All workers' compensation insurance policies issued with an inception date during 2023 must be assessed to recover the amounts advanced on behalf of these policyholders. The annual State of Oregon National Workers' Compensation Cost Report says California has the third highest workers' compensation rates in the nation. Beginning in 1986, the State of Oregon has analyzed workers' comp premium rates in all U.S. states and the District of Columbia. This edition of the study analyzes premium rates effective through January 1, 2022. Here are the states with the 10 highest index rates in the current 2022 Oregon Workers' Compensation Premium Rates Ranking Report. The most expensive was New Jersey with an index rate of $2.44. Number two was Hawaii. Number three, California with an index rate of $2.26. Number four, New York. Number five, Louisiana. Number six, Vermont. Number seven, Wyoming. Number eight, Wisconsin. Number nine, Maine. And the 10th lowest state in the nation was Connecticut. The national median index rate was $1.27 per $100 of payroll. This is its lowest value since the inception of the study in 1986 after peaking in 1994. The American Bar Association has lowered the bar to law school admissions. The ABA standards currently require law schools to use a valid and reliable test in admissions decisions. For years, the only standardized test that automatically met the criteria was the Law School Admission Test, or LSAT. However, the ABA added the Graduate Record Examination, which is the GRE, 
as an acceptable alternative in 2021. The Council of the ABA Section of Legal Education Admissions to the Bar has now advanced a proposal to make standardized admission tests optional rather than mandatory at accredited law schools nationwide. And a majority of the Council voted for an amendment to its testing mandate, Standard 503, at its hybrid meeting in Atlanta. The proposal is expected to go to the ABA House of Delegates for consideration at its mid-year meeting in New Orleans in February 2023. And if adopted, the changes would not be implemented until the fall of 2025. The amended standard could end a testing requirement that, for more than 50 years, has been the foundation of law school admissions, and plans to alter the standard proved to be divisive. During public comment on the proposed amendments, those in favor of relaxing Standard 503 said it would open law school doors to more underrepresented students and improve diversity in the legal profession. The mean LSAT score for white test takers was 11.5 points higher than the mean score for black test takers. And there were disparities between test takers, white test takers, and Native Americans, Hispanics, and other minorities. But those opposed to the changes argued the LSAT is still the best way to determine an aspiring lawyer's readiness to meet the demands of law school and provides an added protection because of the heavy debt burden that attending law school entails. And 60 law school deans mounted a defense of this standard. They argued that relaxing it would not necessarily even the playing field for underrepresented students. In their letter, the deans feared that the changes would be premature and could have effects contrary to what is desired. They fear that an unintended consequence of removing the admission requirements will be to diminish the diversity of law school's incoming classes by increasing reliance on grade point average and other criteria that are potentially more infused with bias. And in medical news, a new low back pain treatment study of 17,326 records has some sobering conclusions. Previously, there were no published studies that compare non-pharmacological, pharmacological, and invasive treatments for chronic low back pain in adults and provide summary statistics for benefits and harms. Thus, this new systemic, multi-center, and multi-continent review of both randomized controlled studies and trial registries found that surgeons are still on the journey to successfully treating chronic, nonspecific low back pain without radiopathy. In the new study, which was published online in the Spine Journal this November, the systematic review and meta-analysis compared the benefits and harms of treatments for the management of chronic low back pain without radiculopathy using the benefit-harm scale level 1 to 7. 
The team collected data from randomized controlled trials, including trial registries, and from electronic databases up until May 23, 2022. The outcome measure included comparison of pain at immediate term, which is two weeks or less, and short term, which is greater than two weeks to less than 12 weeks, and serious adverse events using the benefit-harm scale level 1 to 7. The intervention studies include non-pharmacological, which is acupuncture, spinal manipulation only, with pharmacological and invasive treatments compared to placebo. The researchers found that acupuncture had a benefit rating of 3, and manipulation had a benefit rating of 5, in terms of being effective for reduced pain intensity compared to sham. Other treatments were scored as uncertain due to not being effective, statistical heterogeneity, preventing pooling of sizes, or the absence of relevant trials. The researcher reported that the harms level warnings were at the lowest for acupuncture, followed by spinal manipulation, NSAIDs, and combination ingredient opioids and steroid injections. There were higher harms ratings for opioid and surgery. Researchers concluded that there is uncertainty about the benefits and harms of all of the interventions reviewed due to the lack of trials conducted in patients with chronic, nonspecific low back pain without radiculopathy. From the limited trials conducted, non-pharmacological interventions of acupuncture and spinal manipulation provide safer benefits than pharmacological or invasive interventions. But the authors cautioned that more research is needed. And some injured workers may be having trouble filling their prescriptions at pharmacies in the Bay Area. The Berkeley Side website reports that closures and reduced pharmacy hours at drugstores in the Bay Area have left customers scrambling to find places to get their prescriptions filled. CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid have all announced cutbacks in hours and closures, as the industry refocuses on online delivery. This has left many pharmacists and staff in Berkeley, Oakland, and Emeryville overwhelmed and underscheduled, and their customers waiting in long lines at the remaining pharmacies. The Secretary-Treasurer of United Food and Commercial Workers Local 5 said that out of the 75 CVS stores they represent, Seven or eight locations shuttered since the end of last year in Marin, Alameda, Santa Clara, and San Mateo counties. In November 2021, CVS announced the closure of 900 brick-and-mortar stores starting in the spring of 2022. According to Walgreens and CVS websites, controlled medications such as some pain and ADHD drugs cannot be delivered. Those medications require a customer to pick them up at a physical pharmacy. Walgreens permanently closed two pharmacies in Berkeley in 2020 and 2021, 
and one in Oakland in July 2021, which city leaders tried unsuccessfully to keep open. A spokesperson for Walgreens wrote in an email that healthcare entities have been experiencing staffing challenges due to the ongoing national labor shortage. In September, the CVS in Emeryville in, on San Pablo Avenue permanently closed, leaving the city with one CVS pharmacy located inside a Target store. There is currently only one Rite Aid in Oakland and none in Emeryville or Berkeley. Due to recent robberies at pharmacies, Local 5 built into their most recent contract with CVS a requirement for higher staffing levels in the evenings. Earlier this month, the Walgreens on 34th Street and Telegraph Avenue in Oakland also closed. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.